Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. So to reduce costs, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. Over 70,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash gps. netsuite.com slash gps. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria. Today on the show, Trump and Kim meet again and the self-proclaimed world's greatest dealmaker left empty-handed. We decided that we had to walk. What to make of the art of no deal? North Korea, Israel, Russia, much more with an all-star panel. Also, two nuclear nations went to the brink this week, India and Pakistan. A 70-year-long conflict dangerously flaring up again. What's next for the warring nuclear neighbors? And the Khashoggi killer. The CIA believes the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia ordered the murder. But he was supposed to be a great reformer. I'll bring you a preview of my new special report, Saudi Arabia Kingdom of Secrets. It airs Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern and Pacific. But first, here's my take. It appears that President Trump decided that a bad deal with North Korea was worse than no deal, a reasonable conclusion that suggests he and his team were approaching this important issue with the seriousness it deserves. One of the challenges with North Korea is trying to get an agreement that locks in concessions at the start because history tells us that Pyongyang will not follow through, fully implement or honor its commitments. But in truth, The U.S. does not have a great track record of honoring its commitments in international agreements either. It's always useful in a negotiation to put oneself in the other side's shoes. If you were a North Korean statesman, you'd surely study the last important international agreement negotiated and signed by an American president, the Iran nuclear deal. In exchange for the elimination of 98 percent of Iran's fissile material, thousands of centrifuges and its Iraq nuclear reactor, as well as the installation of cameras and inspectors virtually everywhere, the U.S. agreed to waive sanctions against Iran and do business with Iran. But even under the Obama administration, Iran never really got much access to the international economic system. And once Trump took office, his administration began actively undermining it and even violating it, lobbying European countries to boycott Iran and using the dollar's powers to freeze any business with Iran. Or consider when Libya agreed in 2003 to disclose and dismantle all its weapons of mass destruction, which it basically followed through on. In return, the Bush administration had promised to help Libya gain security and respect among nations and pledged far better relations between the two nations. The U.S. suggested it would work to turn Libya into a prosperous country. Little of this happened, of course, and several years later, the Obama administration helped topple the Gaddafi regime. If the North Koreans look back honestly at their own history of negotiations with the U.S., they will recognize that they repeatedly lied, cheated, and broke promises. Now, Washington's behavior is not nearly as duplicitous, but it did make promises to Pyongyang that were never really kept. 
1994, North Korea agreed to halt its operations at the Yongbyong nuclear facility and have its spent fuel monitored by inspectors. In return, Washington would move toward full normalization of political and economic relations and give the North two light water reactors plus heavy fuel oil. North Korea took most of the steps outlined, but as scholar Leon Siegel points out, Washington moved extremely slowly on its commitments, never providing the light water reactors and failing to deliver the fuel on time. It took almost no steps to normalize relations. Pyongyang made clear that if the U.S. did not live up to its end of the deal, it would renege on its own obligations. Still, the Clinton administration did not come through, and North Korea began violating the accord. When the Bush administration came to power, of course, it scuttled the entire process and moved to a much harder line against Pyongyang. These American moves are part of the hyper-polarized political environment of the past quarter century. During the Cold War, international agreements and commitments made by one president were most likely to be upheld by his successors. Compare that with the current environment. Trump has pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal, the Paris Climate Accord, and the Trans-Pacific Partnership. He's questioned the continuing value of NATO. He has repeatedly shown that he regards every decision made by his immediate predecessor to be at least wrong, often treasonous. If you were a North Korean negotiator, you would surely be wondering if any deal made by the Trump administration would be honored or properly implemented by its successors. And you'd be right to wonder. America's bitter polarization at home now exacts a price in the nation's credibility and consistency abroad. For more, go to CNN.com slash Fareed and read my Washington Post column this week. And let's get started. So Donald Trump was not able to close the deal with Kim Jong-un. Is that good or bad or somewhere in between? I've got a great panel today. Richard Haas is the president of the Council on Foreign Relations, a former director of policy planning at the State Department. Robin Wright is a contributing writer for The New Yorker and a distinguished fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Center. And Matt Koenig is the deputy director for strategy in the Skokoff Center for Strategy and Security and a professor at Georgetown. Uh, Richard, the premise of this deal, of this summit, seemed to be Everybody else thinks we should do these summits bottom up, uh, you know, deputies and officials negotiating the minutiae and then the formal, perhaps ceremonial meeting between the two heads. Donald Trump said, no, we're going to go top down. What does this tell us? The failure of the summit, what does it say? Well, it says a bottom-up doesn't work, top-down also doesn't work, although for different reasons. It doesn't help when the president has too much confidence in his personal relationships and chemistry. Foreign policy, at the end of the day, is not about, is not about chemistry. There wasn't enough preparation. Summits, at most, should do the last 10 percent of the deal, so they left way too much up. But I actually think there's something more fundamental at work here, Fareed, which is simply, I'm not sure there's a deal. If the goal is to get North Korea to denuclearize, not just rhetorically, but in fact, they're not going to do it. They have concluded that nuclear weapons are essential for their security and for their position as a country. So either we're not, we have to give up on that goal and accept lesser outcomes, 
uh, or, th or think about another policy, whether it's the use of force or the use of economic sanctions, all of which have major shortcomings. But if we think we can negotiate our way to a North Korea that gives up our nuclear weapons and missiles, we're kidding ourselves. So the real question is whether we're prepared to, to accept lesser outcomes. Uh, Robin, to illustrate that point, you're one of the few journalists who's actually been in North Korea. I remember reading something you wrote after, maybe it was Madeleine Albright's trip, um, and you talked about the, the depth and complexity of the North Korean program, both missiles and nuclear. Just describe what, you know, what we are talking about here. Well, North Korea began its program after the 1950s. We're going back more than seven decades. Uh, after Dwight Eisenhower pled, warned North Korea, as well as China, that he was prepared to use a nuclear weapon against them if they did not return to peace talks to end formally end the uh, Korean War. And the North Koreans did return to the negotiating table, but all they managed to agree on in what was the longest armistice negotiation in history was a temporary truce. And that truce has lasted for 70 years. So the issue is not just the denuclearization of North Korea and the elimination of its other chemical, biological, weapons of mass destruction and its intercontinental ballistic missiles. It's also how do you ensure that there's no conflict in the future? And North Korea has this deep-seated fear that now dates back three generations of the Kim dynasty about what U.S. intentions might be and what they might use to uh, force North Korea to do something. And so Richard's right. The fact that the, the prospect that they're going to give up all their, nu their nuclear weapons, all their ability to defend themselves against major powers is an illusion. Uh, and it was certainly an illusion to go to Hanoi and think that you were going to get a major breakthrough. I think the big question now is, is it even possible for Donald Trump to get some kind of agreement before the 2020 election? Uh, this is a drawn out process that uh, involves incredible details of uh, inspections and um, setting up an apparatus to go in and look at what the North Koreans have, which they haven't even declared. And, and, and then and just on that part, Robin, what I was talking about is what they have is you're talking, we're talking about un underground tunnels that go on yes. for hundreds of miles, planes yes. that are in those tunnels that can be, you know, that can taxi in the tunnel and then come out, um, missile, you know, uh, facilities we don't know about yet. Absolutely. There are three tunnels that are believed to have airstrips underneath them so that the plane can go full uh, down the runway and take off as it leaves the mouth of a tunnel. Uh, there are believed to be thousands of those. And President Trump made a very interesting revelation yesterday when he said that the United States had indicated or had found recently new covert facilities. And the question is, if North Korea even gives us a, a list of what it has, whether that's the truth, then how do we figure out if it is? Uh, Matt, let me ask you, um, when you listen to all this, Fundamentally, though, Trump, at the end of the day, did the right thing in walking away from a bad deal. Is that a sign that he is now being advised by people like uh, Mike Pompeo and John Bolton, uh, who are serious adults, and that he's listening to them? What, what, what lesson should we take from that? Well, overall, I think Trump's approach to the North Korea problem has been uh, pretty reasonable and um, really more consistent with traditions in uh, U.S. policy for dealing with rogue states. Um, we have this kind of bipartisan consensus of, of pressure and engagement. Uh, so is the Bush and Obama approach to Iran, 
and it's the Trump approach to North Korea, uh, increasing the economic, political, military pressure on North Korea so long as it continues uh, this nuclear and missile program, uh, but then holding out the possibility of negotiations if they're willing to come to the table. Uh, since it's Trump, though, it's done uh, with his distinctive uh, flair. So when it's pressure, it's maximum pressure and threats of fire and fury. Uh, and when it's um, time for engagement, it's maximum engagement with head of state uh, leaders. Um, so it's um, a hard problem, as everyone's pointed out, but I, I think this approach has at least as good a chance of working as what we've tried in the past. But Richard, there is one problem with the maximum on the side of maximum friendliness, which is uh, he seemed too eager to, to make this work, which might have given Kim Jong-un the idea that he could ask for a lot. Well, absolutely. One of the biggest mistakes, I think you could probably find it in the art of the deal, is to want an agreement too much. You can't signal that because the other fellow then, the person on the other side of the table, gets, gets the leverage. It's one of the great ironies. That was a principal criticism of what, what the Obama administration did with the Iran deal. Now you've got this administration wanting an agreement too much, talking about Nobel Peace Prizes, talking about denuclearization. So they've raised the stakes, they've raised their ambitions, which may, I think actually makes it easier for North Korea to, to do exactly what they did, saying, well, we'll give you some things. We'll get rid of this facility, this enrichment facility, but first you've got to do an awful lot of what we want on sanctions, and none of that is connected to the idea of full and complete and verifiable denuclearization. All right. Stay with us. When we come back next on GPS, an embattled leader is fighting back against the left wing, the press, the prosecutors who seem to be closing in. No, not Donald Trump, but his good friend, Benjamin Netanyahu. We'll talk about BB's struggles in the Middle East when we come back. On Thursday, Israel's Attorney General announced that Prime Minister Netanyahu would be charged with bribery and a breach of trust pending a hearing in the matter. In less than 40 days, Israelis will go to the polls. Netanyahu had for a time looked like he might be a shoo-in for a fifth term in office. No longer. We are back with Richard Haas, Robin Wright and Matthew Cronin. Richard, this, this is seismic. What does this mean? I think it's going to be awfully hard for him to get reelected. I think you'll have this election. This new centrist coalition will get a plurality. But as has always been the case in Israel's history, no party has ever gotten a majority. You've got to cobble together a coalition. I think the most interesting thing for Reid would be these, this new centrist or center-right coalition will negotiate with Bibi's own party minus Bibi. And I think their best chance so of building... they'll say, we'll go into coalition with you, but you've got to dump the prime minister. With Likud, but now you have to dump the uh, likely-to-be-indicted prime minister. If I were going to put my money down, that's what I'd put it on. Uh, Matthew, when you look at this, um, does it feel to you like this, does this matter to U.S. policy? Has BB, that relationship between uh, Trump and BB, Jared Kushner and BB, seems to have been so crucial in the U.S. thinking about it, the Middle East? Does this change the way Trump looks at the Middle East? Well, it's important to point out that these are only allegations uh, at this point. Uh, BB hasn't been found guilty. Uh, and it's impossible to say how it will affect the elections. Uh, it likely doesn't help uh, Bibi. Uh, there may be some uh, defecting, defectors from his coalition. Uh, but it's possible that he could still emerge as the candidate best able to form a coalition uh, after the elections. Uh, but even if not, I think the U.S.-Israel relationship is uh, strong. Uh, the center-left coalition, also strong on national security, I think will also have uh, good relations with the United States. Uh, so I think it's certainly important. Uh, Bibi is going to be fighting for his political future and maybe even for his freedom. 
Uh, but at the end of the day, I don't think it's going to fundamentally affect Israeli foreign policy or uh, U.S.-Israel relations. Do you think there's a chance for the great uh, Middle East peace plan that Jared Kushner has been pushing? You've, you've tended to be somewhat sympathetic at times to the Trump administration, but where is this peace plan and what, what is the peace plan? Well, um, that's a very hard problem. Uh, I think it's going to be difficult for the Trump administration to get Middle East peace, uh, as it has been for uh, many administrations before. Um, but I do think the overall approach uh, in the Middle East has made sense. They've focused on the priority national security issue, which is the Iranian uh, nuclear threat. Uh, they've brought together a coalition to put tough sanctions uh, on Iran and to push back on their behavior in the region. Uh, and so uh, I think the peace plan is going to be difficult. But overall, um, I think it was a helpful reset uh, to focus more on uh, supporting U.S. allies in the region, Gulf states, uh, Israel, and countering Iran's malign activity. Peace plan, uh, Richard Haas? Not going to work. Uh, this whole idea of an outside-in using the Sunni Arab states to somehow deliver the Palestinians, it's not going to happen. And the fact is, it's still not clear in Israel and with the Palestinians, you've got actors who are both willing and able to make the necessary compromises for peace. So color me skeptical. Um, Robin Wright, let me ask you one question before we go back to North Korea. The president says that he trusts Kim Jong-un when he says, when Kim says, he didn't know about Otto Warmbier. It strikes me it's a very small and very repressive police state in which it's highly unlikely that Kim would not have known about an American who was kept, uh, you know, in captivity and then tortured. You're absolutely right. And it's astounding that President Trump would make that allegation. But he has done that before, whether it's dealing with the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, or talking about Vladimir Putin in Russia. He seems to be willing to trust uh, these dictatorial regimes. And there's no question that in North Korea, Kim Jong-un knew exactly what Americans have been detained, how they were treated, and uh, would have known the nitty-gritty details about the condition of these people. After all, these were in some ways pawns in international diplomacy as well. Thank you all. Fascinating conversation. Next on GPS, India and Pakistan, neighbors and enemies. Is this current flare-up of tensions over, or is it just beginning? Kashmir, one of the most beautiful places in the world. For 72 years, India and Pakistan have been fighting over this mountainous region. Each country controls a portion of it. Each country would like to control all of it. Over the decades, the two nations have fought two wars over Kashmir. Tensions flared up again this week in a very serious way. In mid-February, terrorists from Pakistan claimed responsibility for an attack inside India. On Tuesday, India said its air force had struck those terrorists in Pakistan. On Wednesday, Pakistan said it had shot down two Indian aircraft, then released a video interview with one of the pilots. On Friday, that pilot was sent back across the border. So are the two nations back from the brink? Joining me now here in New York is Ravi Agarwal, CNN's former India bureau chief and now the managing editor of foreign policy. And Musharraf Zaidi joins me from Islamabad. He's a columnist for the News International. Uh, Ravi, let me start with you. Um, it feels like this kind of thing has happened in the past. Um, terror attack originating from Pakistan in India. The Indians get upset. 
What's different this time? What's different this time, Fareed, is that India has responded in a more muscular way. And it's done so because, in part, it has elections coming up, but also because it isn't seeing this attack in isolation. It is looking at the last 20 years of attacks on Indian soil emanating from Pakistani territory. There was, of course, the 2002 attack on the Indian parliament. There was the Mumbai attacks in 2008, which killed nearly 200 people, and then attacks in 2016 as well in Kashmir. So um, for if you add all of those those things up, the Indians will say that they've shown remarkable restraint thus far, and that this time enough was enough. There was a lot of goading from the Indian media for muscular action, and it seems Modi's responded. And it's important to state here that this is the first time since 1971 that India sent fighter jets across the border. So this is an escalation on the Indian side. And if anything, if both sides can now see this as a victory of sorts, where they can tell their people that we've been muscular, we've done well, Pakistan can say that it has acted statesmanlike in returning this pilot, then we may be nearing a de-escalation at this stage. Um, Musharraf, what does it tell us that uh, this terror attack happened, um, assuming what, you know, as I said, the, the terror group Jashir Mohammed seems to have claimed responsibility for it. Um, it doesn't seem like a moment where the Pakistani military, uh, which tends to have an influence with these groups, would want uh, to sour relations with India. The prime minister seemed to be looking for good relations. Does it mean that there's something else going on, that the Pakistani military does not have as much control over these groups as we think? Or is this a random one-off? Uh, Fareed, you know, one of the questions that's been asked here in Pakistan repeatedly is what benefit does this offer uh, to Pakistan in any way whatsoever? Uh, you know, the, the accusation or the claim about Jashim Mohammed being behind it obviously is backed by the video that the uh, terrorists left behind. Meanwhile, in Pakistan, we have an army chief that's been working behind the scenes to de-escalate with India. Uh, in the run-up to the Pakistani election in July of 2018, there was a substantial I would say a dramatic reduction in the violations of the line of control uh, that tends to flare up whenever there's uh, trouble between the two nations. And then you saw the prime minister, the new prime minister in Pakistan, reach out to Narendra Modi uh, not once but twice after being uh, after taking office. So I think, given this background and given the unique nature of the February 14th attack, uh, there is definitely something that 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 doesn't quite fit. And then, of course, as Ravi said, everything is sort of you know I, I think the norms and the rules of engagement between the two countries have substantially substantially changed as a, result, as a result of India's attack in, uh, in Balakot and Pakistan's response. Uh, Ravi, there is a mystery here, but, you know, even with the Indian response, what exactly happened? For, so the Indians claim that they destroyed all these terrorist camps. The Pakistanis actually say you, you did nothing. There was all, no damage. The videos the Pakistanis have released seem to, uh, to reinforce or confirm that view. Uh, and the two medias on both sides have completely different narratives about what happened. Yeah, the, the correct answer is we actually don't know what happened because the place that India claims it has bombed, uh, journalists don't have access to in Pakistan. So unfortunately, where we're stuck is having statements from both governments and medias on both sides that believe those statements and are, are very willing to sort of uh, parade those statements to the public and have the public believe in it. That isn't a bad thing. I mean, if that is what is going to lead to both sides feeling like they've achieved some degree of success, uh, th then that will allow them to save face in a way. So, 
you know, absent American diplomacy, absent other global ways of mediating this conflict, it seems the media and social media has played a very powerful role here. That's not entirely bad. Musharraf, um, it seems to me just from the, from the politics of it, uh, it does look like uh, Narendra Modi was very anxious to respond in a very tough way because he has these elections coming up. It plays to his coalition perfectly to be tough on Pakistan. And Imran Khan, the new prime minister of Pakistan, seemed quite statesmanlike and trying to defuse things. Um, do you think that uh, the Pakistanis will understand that Modi was playing politics uh, and that there will still be a possibility for a real rapprochement? I think so, Farid. I think it's really clear uh, from the conduct of the prime minister in Pakistan. And as you know, you know, the, even in the best of times uh, or the worst, uh, the military is a significant, uh, plays a significant role in these kinds of dynamics and, and the question of how to deal with India. Uh, but it seems from every statement and every sort of move from the Pakistani side that there's a real appetite, whether it's before the election, which I think is impossible given everything that's happened. But certainly after the election, I, I still anticipate that there will be a big push by Pakistan uh, to reach out, as it has been even in these, in these quite difficult times. So I think, you know, Pakistan seems uh, genuinely interested in, in shifting the needle with India and uh, how much uh, Narendra Modi is able to resist his instinct to rile things up uh, for the sake of an election, I think, is a question that will be answered over the next two and a half months as, as India goes to the polls. But, uh, but if we can get there without any further damage, then I think the prospects for a summer of peace uh, will, will, be, will be good. Well, let's end on that hopeful note. Gentlemen, thank you both very much. Next on GPS, tiny Estonia's secret weapon against its bullying neighbor, Russia. How this digital nation found a way to fight back when we come back. Will you please raise your hand if you would use products or services from Huawei or ZTE? None of you would. You obviously lead intelligence services, so that's something of a biased question. Raise your hand if you would recommend that private American citizens use Huawei or ZTE products or services. None of you, again, are raising your hand. Thank you. Stark disapproval from America's top intelligence officials for two of China's biggest tech giants at a Senate hearing a year ago. That might have been the first that many Americans heard about Huawei, but it certainly wasn't the last. And it's not just American citizens that the government has warned to stay far away. According to The Wall Street Journal, American officials have been telling many of America's closest allies not to use, in particular, Huawei communications equipment because of the security threat it may pose. At the heart of the issue is 5G, the next generation of wireless communication technology. So just what is 5G and what threat might Huawei pose? I had a chance to talk to the CEO of another huge player in the 5G space, Chuck Robbins of Cisco. Chuck, pleasure to have you on. It's great to be here. Thank you. Um, so first of all, explain to everybody, why is 5G such a big deal? I mean, we've had 3G and 4G. Uh, it, people are talking about it as some kind of a huge inflection point. Right. Is it? It is. And, you know, 4G was really about just connectivity. And 5G is really about transforming experiences. It is, it is one of those technologies that is likely going to live up to the hype, which is always good to see. 
and it's really going to enable. And just to be clear, it's a hundred times faster than 4G. It has the capacity to be a hundred times faster. And uh, so, I mean, the speeds that you'll have, and this is, there'll be some benefit to a mobile phone, but the real interesting applications are going to be, you know, connecting machines in cities. We talk about smart cities and and being able to process real-time information, which you need to be able to process. If we're going to fundamentally change how our traffic systems flow, you need real-time data that's analyzed immediately and decisions made. And this kind of connectivity is going to enable that. So in a sense, the traffic lights will be able to talk to each other. That's right. If you're looking for parking, the meters will be talking to your phone and telling exactly. you, here's, a, here's an empty parking spot four blocks away. And that can all happen because of this lightning speed. And, and this thing called latency, which is basically the time it takes to get the communication back and forth not only just bandwidth, but how, how quickly you can do that. There, there are other great applications, like we're gonna be able to connect people around the world who the, the thought of a ter- terrestrial connection is not possible, whether they're in rural mountains or villages, we'll be able to connect them now and we'll be able to deliver healthcare there, we'll be able to deliver education there and give them an opportunity to actually connect and then become educated and perhaps participate more effectively in, in the global system. So there's lots of great applications. Um, what does it mean when people talk about who is going to own the architecture of this 5G-powered uh, you know, internet? Because the whole issue is, is it going to be Huawei, the Chinese, or is it going to be companies like Cisco and Qualcomm and you know, the, uh, Nokia and Ericsson? So is there something to that? Like, does it matter who actually builds the innards of the system? Well, it's funny because I hear people talk about the race to 5G, and I, I actually asked them, what, what do you exactly mean, right? Because you could say, who's going to have services out first or who's going to own the underlying technology? And I think much like all the technologies we've seen to date, there, there's not going to be one manufacturer that's going to be, I'd love to think that would be us, but it's, it's not going to be. And I think that primarily because we don't even play in all the spaces that, that you have to play in to build an end-to-end 5G network. So companies like Nokia, uh, Ericsson, even Samsung play in the macro radio space, and we play in the core networking space. Uh, and in a lot of the, the other Explain areas. Explain to people so, what that means is you build the wires that go to the cell towers, then the signal that goes from the cell tower, maybe Ericsson or Nokia has some patents around. That's right. So what does Huawei do? Well, they do the radio networks, and they also do core networking so as well. So they do both. And know. they do handsets, and they're in a lot of businesses we're not in. And the question I guess everybody wants to understand is, if Huawei is one of the dominant players in this space, I think all, almost everyone agrees. If the Chinese government said to Huawei, give us the data, they would have no option to do it. But is that meaningful? Will Huawei be you know, sort of so dominant that it can, that it can um, suck away all this data from every, you know, everybody in the world and give it to the Chinese government? So I, I have no visibility to the answer to that question. But there are two different questions. So one is, you know, if the Chinese government asked Huawei, would they do it? And I'm saying to you, you don't have to answer that. Right. I'm going to say most people would think the answer would be yes. But the second question is, does Huawei technologically have the, have the ability to be that dominant, that this would be a, a scary prospect? Well, I think that if you look at our share today, in the markets where we compete globally, we have, we're, we're number one in most of the markets that we compete in. And I believe the innovation that we're bringing forward right now, and many of my competitors probably believe the innovation they're bringing forward, 
is going to position them to actually win and gain share. The current infrastructure around the world is built on a combination of of communications suppliers from Europe, from China, from the U.S., everywhere. And I think that uh, despite everything that we hear, I think that's going to be the case in the future as well. Chuck, pleasure to have you on. Thank you. And we will be back. CNN will premiere my latest special report tonight. It's called Saudi Arabia Kingdom of Secrets. Now, it's not just a place of secrets. It is also a kingdom of contradictions. Take the young crown prince, whom the CIA believes ordered the killing of the journalist Jamal Khashoggi. He has also pushed through big reforms in the kingdom. Or take the fact that this important ally of the United States was also the birthplace of so many of those behind 9-11. Take a look. In 1996, Osama bin Laden declared war on the United States. These youths love death as you love life, he warned. These youths are steadfast at war. They will sing out that there is only killing. Fifteen of the 19 hijackers on 9-11 were from one country, Saudi Arabia. The man who led them, Osama bin Laden, was from Saudi Arabia. ISIS. And other terrorist groups killing Americans have been filled with recruits from Saudi Arabia. How did one of America's closest allies become the home of its most bitter enemies. To understand, we have to go back almost 300 years to the 1700s. Two men formed an alliance in the Arabian desert, a cleric known as Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab and a warrior named Muhammad bin Saud, the patriarch of the Saudi royal family. Al-Wahhab and his followers were the ISIS of their time, preaching strict adherence to the Quran on pain of death. Their puritanical faith became known as Wahhabism. And it is that creed that governs Saudi Arabia. Authorities in Saudi Arabia have executed five... Wahhabism starts from a principle that I, as a Muslim, can determine if another Muslim is a good Muslim. And if he or she is not, then I can proclaim him or her a heretic, and that person is subject to the most drastic penalties, including death. Wahhabism was only a minor sect of Islam for much of its history. The Muslim world was shaped far more by large, diverse societies like Egypt. Oil in commercial quantities. Then, Saudi Arabia struck oil. 200,000 barrels a day. With mountains of cash, the kingdom eclipsed other Muslim nations and spread its version of the faith everywhere. What oil money did was finance the building of Islamic centers, mosques, and madrasas, putting conditions that ensured that their exclusivist ideas alone 
would be taught in those madrasas, those Islamic centers, and those mosques. But in 1979, Wahhabism turned on the kingdom itself. Armed religious fanatics today seized the great mosque in the Muslim holy city of Mecca in Saudi Arabia and took hostages. The attackers were extreme religious conservatives. They were appalled by the unholy westernization that the riches of oil had wrought. They broadcast their message that the Saudi ruling family are drunkards, gamblers, people who have taken Saudi Arabia away from the true Islamic faith. Saudi forces were so ill-equipped that French commandos had to be called in to help. After two weeks, the rebels were finally captured and beheaded. Please don't miss my important special tonight, only on CNN at 8 p.m. Eastern and Pacific. We dig into the Khashoggi killing, the kingdom's relationship with Trump, and much more. And I'll see you again back here on GPS next Sunday. Thank you so much for being part of my program this week. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.